Hello everyone and welcome to this special episode of the Belgian Football Podcast. This episode is looking at Club Bruges' upcoming UEFA Champions League group stages. And as we kind of did last year, but it was slightly different, we have found a couple of guests for you who are going to tell you everything you need to know about the three teams that Bruges will be facing. We asked some questions around tactics and formations, domestic form, key players, their reaction to the draw, maybe the media in their country's reaction to the draw as well everything we have got covered and in this one it was you Scott who spoke to these three wonderful guests so why don't you just give a quick introduction as to who you spoke to. Yeah I had a great time speaking to a lovely range of guests uh, to preview Bruges Champions League group so I spoke to the big PSG podcast PSG Talks, I spoke to Karan Tejwani, who is a journalist and an author all about Leipzig. And I had a lovely chat with Dave Mooney from the Big Man City podcast, Blue Moon. Dave actually shared a a really nice story about Kevin De Bruyne, so uh, listen out for that. Yeah, fantastic. We really hope you'll enjoy these. And um, yeah, we're definitely looking forward to this group of death, I guess you could call it. Genk fans will probably remember Shabozloy and the manager, the now manager of Leipzig, Jesse Maas, who moved up the kind of Red Bull Pyramid from Salzburg to Leipzig. And obviously Man City, we all know Kevin De Bruyne is going to be back. Um, And also 17-year-old Belgian Romeo Lavia may make a City debut as he has been included in the Champions League squad. So plenty to look out for in this kind of group stage. And we really hope you'll enjoy this special episode. Ed, very warm welcome to the the Belgian Football Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. Now, I suppose we should tell everybody right at the start that, you know, you're the co-host of the the 24th and the the Park Podcast. Is that right? Well, that's one of our podcasts. We're kind of bringing that podcast back from the dead. It kind of went dormant for a little while. Our uh, flagship podcast is the PSG Talking Podcast. We've been doing that one since, I think, 2016. So we've got a whole podcast network. So yeah, 24th and Park, PSG uh, Talking, and we've got... uh, uh, the 1970 is another one we have. So I'm, I'm every day is a new podcast. Great, a whole podcast network. Good, good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think we should we should probably start at the beginning actually, and just have a wee chat about you know the reaction to the group draw in in the PSG community because we know now that Champions League Group A this year will consist of Belgium's Club Bruges, England's Manchester City, RB Leipzig from from Germany, and uh, Paris Saint Germain, otherwise known to the wider footballing community as as PSG from from France. Yeah, so. Over- Overall reaction, I think I speak for a lot of PSG fans. We were a little underwhelmed with this one. And also it's kind of laughable. Of course, PSG always gets drawn into the quote unquote uh, group of death with uh, Manchester City. We never get an easy draw. But I think it's a little bit boring just because we've seen a lot of these teams you know we played Manchester City in the semifinals last season we played Bruges what was it back in 2019 so you know in the Champions League you really like to see some new teams it's a chance to play someone different and so it was a little bit of a letdown from that point of view but you know going up against Pep and Manchester City is going to be fun Bruges should be a good match as well I know that uh was back in 2019 the the matches weren't as close but you never know it's a new season some good talent coming through so overall I would say PSG fans are kind of ho-hum on this group stage. we kind of looking for something a little bit more exciting with the uh, Kylian Mbappe rumors. It would have been nice to draw Real Madrid, but I know that they were in the same pot, so that couldn't happen. Uh, same with Barcelona. Some of our nemesis 
nemesis on the European stage. It would have been nice to play them. But I guess for now, Man City will be our nemesis. So we'll go with that. So I suppose this gives me a chance to, to use a little bit of French. And it's a bit of deja vu then for, for, for PSG fans. So that's how they feel about this group. It is. Yeah. And I guess one good thing, it's not too much traveling. You know, Leipzig, I guess, is a little bit of a, a trip. But you never know with Leipzig. They have so much young talent coming through, kind of like Bruges. But, um, you know, they've lost their manager. They have a new person coming in and uh, some new players that they had to bring in as they sold some of their marquee names. So I think this is going to be a different Leipzig side. So maybe maybe that's what we kind of look forward to, a different Leipzig team. And Bruges have, have sold a few as well. So some new faces, even if the teams are familiar. And how are, how are PSG doing domestically at the moment? Have they started the season? Yes, started the season. PSG undefeated, as you may have guessed, in, in Ligue 1. Um, we're... I believe it's three weeks in now, um, three games or four games. I'm sorry, four games in played Trois, uh, Strasbourg, Brest and Reem PSG are undefeated. But, you know, people may look at that and say, oh, they're, you know, it's easy. It's a cakewalk for them, whatever it might be. But the games have actually been pretty close. These teams are giving PSG all that they can handle. And, and also keep in mind that a lot of PSG players had international duty over the summer. And so a lot of players haven't really come back into the team. And so Maurizio Pochettino's had to move things around, play players that maybe are on the fringe of the starting lineup. And so they've kind of kept the ship afloat while we're waiting for the Messi's to come in and the Neymar's and Mbappe's been there and he's been incredible as you might imagine. But yeah, we don't really have the full team, but so far so good. Top of the league, can't complain. Excellent, strong start. I suppose we, we should kind of turn on to PSG's European aspirations and expectations. How 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 are they kind of how are they going to approach the, the the Champions League this season? It's always every season. It's win the Champions League. That is the only trophy that they care about. They may say that they care about league on trophy and they care about the Coupe de France, but really it, it's that big year trophy. That's the one that the uh, Qatari ownership wants. And so every season it's win it or bust. And so um, it, it, and now with the investment that they've made all the the summer transfers I feel like the pressure is even more so the media everyone with Messi coming in is going to be watching this team and uh and if they come up short it's a failure which is kind of crazy you know I, I think even if you make it to the semifinals and you don't get to the finals the season could be deemed a failure and but that's the the level that PSG have brought themselves to where if they don't reach the final of the Champions League, the season, nothing else matters. It's a failure and all of that. And, and they have to rebuild and, and try again next season. So it'll be interesting how Pochettino, coming from Spurs, never really had that expectation. You know, Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, they, they know how to play with that kind of pressure. But I, I think the big question is, can Pochettino lead this team to the final and ultimately get them over the hump? The last two seasons, they reached the semifinal and, and did get to a final against Bayern Munich. Can they finally get over that hurdle? That's going to be the big question this season. Yeah, it's, it's a surprise that, you know, they, they, they're definitely after, I think, aren't they? I think the outside of the PSG community, um, I think other football fans definitely are, are aware of the fact that, you know, PSG... Are, kind of prioritising the big cup as some people like to call it you mentioned him a few times already and we obviously have to talk about him because he is and I, and I personally still think he's, he's he's the best player on the planet there are some others who would, would argue that you know they, they have a case but I still think um, Messi is, is 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 the best do you think him joining recently has has sort of intensified that pressure because the pressure was obviously massive already with the amount of talent there but do you think it's it's gone up a few notches since he's come in? 100% I, I I can just look at our little corner of the web of the internet and with Messi coming to PSG 
our views went up, our podcast listen went up. And I can only imagine what that's done for the club. Messi brings with him an enormous audience, a global audience. You talk to an average person here in the United States where I am, maybe they know Neymar, they definitely know Messi. And so he's bringing this audience, all of this global attention to PSG. It is more intense. The pressure is more intense than it's ever been with him being there. But when you look at Messi, he's been doing this for so many years. It's really nothing to him. He's used to this kind of pressure. And what makes him great, to your point, the best football player in the world, is that he's able to perform up against this enormous pressure. And that's going to be the big question, again, along with Pochettino, can he figure it out and lead this team to the final and win, is can Messi do it with another team at PSG? Can he keep up that same level of intensity and performance that he had at Barcelona? Can he translate that to PSG? You know, in in maybe not recent years, the last two, but maybe before that, we had the, the big loss at Barcelona and the loss to Manchester United, PSG kind of came a club that people made fun of a lot of times and so with Messi coming in can he change that narrative can PSG become a serious team and a serious contender that people really have to play their best game to beat um, and that's that's hopefully what PSG have done this summer along with Messi and other signings have they finally put together a team that other teams other big European teams your Bayern Munich your cities and all that will they finally have to take PSG seriously and, and maybe acknowledge hey we're probably second best to them you know Bayern Munich where they may say PSG has a better team than us. We really need to be on our A game. And I don't know if that's always been the case in recent uh, seasons. So it sounds to me like there's a feeling that, you know, Messi and himself might might be the missing piece of the jigsaw and that his, his very presence might just squeeze that little bit extra out of some of the, the already top talent that's there that, that might be enough to, to just lift it into, into that top tier. A hundred percent. I mean, you just look at some of the, the training videos that the club posts. And I mean, think about it. If you were training and you were in the same team as Messi, this godlike mythical figure in football, you're going to try extra hard. You're going to not want to make any big mistakes during a match. You're going to want to listen to him. And so I think that him coming in has just ramped up everyone's effort level. And that's why we were kind of joking before we started recording is that it feels like he just came in. He came in for maybe 30 minutes against Stadarim PSG 1-2-0, but he only came in for a little bit. And so we were just finally getting him incorporated into the team and then the international break. And so we've all been just waiting for the last week and a half or whatever it's been for club football to get back so we can see this team finally come together. I mean, we can hypothesize what we think it'll look like and and what the reaction to uh, Messi's teammates will be, but we really don't know how it's all going to come together. And so with uh, PSG playing Bruges on what was at the 15th, you might be catching PSG at a good time because they haven't had a lot of time to implement all of these new pieces. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think um, they can pin that on the dressing room yeah. wall. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe getting them at a good time, bear that in mind. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, there is a, there's you know an incredible pool of talent, world-class talent, actually, at, at PSG. Tell us a bit more about some of the kind of other key players to kind of watch out for in these ties? I mean, I, I think he's a world-class talent. I, I don't know how much the, the rest of the world knows of him, but Akraf Hakimi, he was at Real Madrid, went to Dortmund. Now he's at PSG. I, for me, I think he's the best right back in the world. I, and I think a lot of the positive things that we'll see from PSG this season are going to come from that right side, whether he is a traditional right back or a wing back. I, I just, his pace, I mean, people talk about Mbappe. I think Hakimi is probably just as fast. And he's just an incredible incredible player um so look out for him marquinhos again he's another world class player but with all the other big names at psg he sort of gets ignored a little bit he's a center back who can play a defensive midfielder he may play that maybe in a back three if pochettino wants to go that route he's the captain 
So you think about you have Sergio Ramos, Neymar, Messi, Mbappe, but it's Marquinhos who is actually the captain of PSG. And I just think he's going to be phenomenal. I'm excited to see Nuno Mendes, another new signing. I think uh, before his arrival on deadline day, uh, PSG's weakest position was the left back position. And by bringing him in, he's young, he's raw, but the skill is there. He, tremendous pace. And I think with him on the left, Hakimi on the right, I, I hope the, the boys at Bruges are, are ready to run because it, it's going to be a long day for them if those two guys are on and they're just going to, they're just unbelievably fast. And so a lot of pace there. And we'll see. I mean, Mauro Cardi's still uh, on the team. We'll see if he gets to play against Bruges. And I know the last time that PSG and Bruges played, he, he had what was it, a hat trick I think it was or maybe four goals total in the two games so you never know maybe he he just likes playing against Bruges and we'll get get a couple goals you never know yeah it's it's, a, it's an interesting question that you know we ask a lot of our guests that you know t- tell us about some of the key players to look out for but in the case of PSG <laughs> there's, there's probably you know you could you couldn't really it's very difficult to pick two or three really that you know gonna do, t- to stand out in particular yeah we, we've got to ask you Ed actually about what what is it like supporting you know an elite super club because there are there are even less of them now than there were before there are clubs that used to consider themselves in that bracket but because of their own financial troubles they they probably in all honesty can't anymore and I, I would argue that there are only two really at the moment could genuinely be considered in that bracket PSG are one and Manchester City the other one interestingly both in the same group but what's that experience like as a fan because most football fans regardless of who their team is obviously cannot cannot relate to that at all so what, what's that ride been like coming from relative footballing obscurity to you know building building what's been built there yeah I, I'll say uh, be careful what you wish for being a PSG fan is not as easy as you might think. Every, everyone sees Messi and Neymar and Mbappe and Verratti and all the big names. But as we talked about earlier, the pressure. There's one trophy that matters. PSG play in a, in a league where, you know, I guess according to the coefficients is the, the sixth best now in Europe. So people dismiss any domestic accomplishment whatsoever, right or wrong. They just do. And so it's really Champions League or bust. And when you have big mistakes on the grand stage against your Barcelonas and Manchester United, I mean, you basically have to wait an entire summer, months and months before you get any kind of redemption. And so it's difficult. It it really is. I mean, I think maybe rooting for a Manchester City would be easier because your domestic accomplishments are applauded and praised by most in the media. But PSG are definitely the bad boy club uh, in, in the eyes of the media. They get very little praise. It's mostly criticism. Even if they do something good, it's always the headlines are tinged with either, I don't know if it's jealousy or animosity or whatever it might be, but just the footballing media in general don't care for PSG. Nothing they do will ever matter. I think even if they win the Champions League, they'll find a way to uh, undercut their accomplishment and say, well, you spend that much money of course you're going to win it but we all know just because you have money doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate uh to success i mean you have to have footballing people in charge to put it all together and so what is it like rooting for them i started psg talk um back in 2015 qsi was the ownership at that point and you know you had zlatan you had some really nice players but they were, and they wanted to win the Champions League. I don't think anyone really thought that they could actually do it. Not like they do now. PSG are the odds favorite to win it. They, every position, world class talent. They're they're more position, better positioned now than ever before to win the Champions League. And so now they have to go do it. And uh, if they come up short as a PSG fan, it's it's going to be a long summer. And you know that's that's just the way it is. So be careful what you wish for. If you if you're a team of Bruges and you're hoping uh, a state comes in and buys them, you know. 
it's going to be the same thing, Champions League or bust. So it's not, it's not an easy thing to be a PSG fan. That's really interesting to kind of hear that regardless of of, of being a, a super club, the, the, the fans of those super clubs still experience some of the same pains and frustrations. That's that's <laughs> kind of good to know, I think, and is, is actually really, really healthy, I think. One of the things we like to do, actually, when we have guests on for our European specials, Ed, is touch on the, the Belgian links with those teams. And there isn't there isn't really a significant connection between between Belgium and PSG, but somebody who is quite significant in, yeah. in recent memory, obviously, is Thomas Mounier, Belgian international who spent uh, four years at PSG between 2016 2020. And I think he made something like 84 appearances for, for PSG. What, what do you remember of his time in Paris? The fan base, I think, in general, is probably glad that he's not a PSG player anymore, especially, as I mentioned, Hakimi is now locking down that right-back position. So that's, I think, is a definite upgrade. Mounier was... He was hot and cold. He had his good moments. He had his bad moments. But he was never an issue in the locker room. He was a consummate professional. And he had some really good moments. I I, I always rated him. I thought he was a, a solid player who went out there and did what you would expect of him to do. He wasn't world class or anything like that. But I thought at the time for what PSG needed, I thought he he did well. And and so I believe he left out a free transfer, if I'm not mistaken. And I, if I can remember back, I think PSG did try to keep a hold of him, but maybe the contract, the, it just didn't work out and, and, and Mounier decided to move on to Dortmund. So, And I think it worked out for both sides. He's getting playing time. PSG were able to upgrade. So I think it all worked out. So I think of Mounier looking back uh, fondly. I think he played well. He represented the club well, um, had some good moments, but it's just one of those things where it was time to move on. You know, it, it just... It worked out for both parties. It's not been that long since Club Bruges played PSG, of course, because they were in the same Champions League group two years ago in 2019. Club losing 1-0 in, in Paris and then being on the wrong end of a of a battering uh, back in Belgium in, in, in Bruges. What, what do you remember of those ties? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned Icardi. I, I just remember him playing really well. He, I think he had a brace. I'm, I misspoke earlier. I said he had trick, but it was actually Mbappe who had the hat trick. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was that Mbappe's first Champions League hat trick? It was some noteworthy accomplishment that Mbappe had in that game, and it was a big success for him. I mean, we know what he did at Monaco uh, in the Champions League, getting that team to a semifinal. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think about that 5-0 win with Mbappe and Icardi scoring and just, you know, five, anytime you score five goals on a Champions League night is, is special. So that's the one that stands out. Um, and then um, Icardi got the 1-0 uh, uh, goal he scored to win 1-0 for PSG. So looking back, it was 6-0 on aggregate, I guess, uh, in the group stage. So I'm hoping maybe a little bit more uh, competitive match. And I think what's interesting is Bruges is kind of known for their the young talent. And we know the French League uh, is full of young talent. And as I mentioned, PSG are, are Four matches into the league schedule and teams have come at PSG They're They know the financial gap is great, but they're using these young players who are just fearless and they're going out there and they're giving PSG all that they can handle. And if I could uh, maybe tell you and, and your listeners, there, there's an opportunity for Bruges to get something here. PSG's defense has not looked as elite as it should be and that we want it to be. They've leaked a lot of goals, especially from set pieces from the air. A lot of headers that are going in. Keeler Nava seems to be struggling with those for some reason shots from distance as well um, can beat him he, he's been known to leak some of those in so I think there's some some opportunities if Bruges comes out and is not afraid and not caught up in the messy and the bright lights and all that if they come out and, and play PSG and put them under some pressure this defense will offer up some chances and whether Bruges can capitalize on that is yet to be seen but I think it, I think it's going to be closer than as you said the the 6-0 over aggregate 
if if Bruges plays the right way. That's interesting because you know you're kind of touching on the, the the importance, I suppose, of psychology in this. You know, a lot of sides go into ties against clubs like PSG, and you know the fear factor obviously is very high for for all sorts of understandable reasons, and often that can sort of smother your natural game. But if you go out there and and you know it's it's eleven against eleven on a pitch, and you know you, you're not you're not taking on the, the marketing image, you're taking on the player in the pitch. You know, pl- play the game rather than the the psychology of it too much, and yeah, then maybe you'll get a better result. Ed, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you and and, and learn a little bit more about PSG and discover that. Even PSG fans feel feel a bit of supporter pain and angst as well. That's that, that's been great. Lovely chatting to you. Yeah, great chatting with you. And yeah, make sure you check out our, our website, psgtalk.com and, and our podcast, PSG Talking. I'm sure we'll be talking about the Bruise match on there. If you want to hear me and other PSG fans talk about the match, head over there. Welcome to the Belgian Football Podcast, Karan. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me on. Happy to be here. For anyone who doesn't already um, know your work, Karan actually, as well as writing for The Guardian and the rather brilliant These Football Times, which is a magazine that I personally am a big fan of, quality publication, your debut book was also published last year, which is pretty relevant for what we're about to talk about. Wings of Change was that book, uh, and it looks much more closely at the Red Bull franchise and how Red Bull have turned a number of teams into a very successful franchise network. And one of the teams in this network is a team we're about to talk about. Some might call it RB Leipzig. Most football fans just refer to it as, as, as Leipzig, don't they, Karan? Yeah, it's got various names. So RB Leipzig in the more German nature is, is the, it's called RB Leipzig. Sometimes it's called Brasen Ballsport. Sometimes Red Bull Leipzig. Whatever it is, you know, the purpose is it's, it's Red Bull's German football network and very popular club, very controversial, very polarising and always a good thing to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned kind of how, how polarising it is because I think fans of teams who aren't considered franchise teams see these teams as kind of quite controversial, don't they, for for various reasons. Why don't we start by having a wee chat about kind of the broader Leipzig story because obviously um, I think most football fans, even if they don't know a lot about Leipzig, w- will know that generally they've come from relative footballing obscurity to being, you know, a real competitor sort of at the top table in the top league. Tell us a bit more about that story. Right, so RB Leipzig is, as I mentioned, the German arm of Red Bull's footballing dynasty. They were formed in 2009 when Red Bull bought the playing license for a fifth division club called SSV Markenstedt, a small, relatively unknown football club, or were relatively unknown football club in Germany. You know, a couple of fans, two, three hundred fans, not many, not much support around them. So when their playing license was taken over by Red Bull, there wasn't much uproar or there wasn't much, you know, people didn't miss them too much. But RB Leipzig uh, were born from that playing license. They were they were starting off in the fifth division. And uh, immediately they changed the name, gave it the Red Bull branding. The logo was changed. The club colours were changed. They moved eventually to the bigger Red Bull arena, or um, at, the time, at the time it was known as the Central Stadion. A decent stadium, but they didn't have a tenant, a permanent tenant playing there. A, a 42,000 42, seat stadium was lying empty in the eastern side of Germany. And uh, it was made for the 2006 World Cup and Red Bull took that over and gave it to RB Leipzig in 2010. They started off in the fifth division and eventually grew up fourth, third, second. And now, as we know, that is one of the superpowers in German football, challenging for the title almost every season and probably are going to be the ones to eventually break Bayern Munich's dominance of uh, the Bundesliga. But yeah, they're, they're a young club. 
barely 12 years old, have a small European history, played in the Europa League a couple once and the Champions League a couple of times, reached the, reached the semi-final, as you all know, last year. But yeah, a very controversial club purely because they've managed to circumvent the 50 plus one rule and also because they're a club that are not traditionally in touch with uh, their fans as most of the German clubs are. German football is very reliant on fan voices and very politically active, which means your voice must be heard, whether it's on big topics like uh, racism or homophobia or sexism in football or whether it's fans having a voice in ticket prices or anything related to the club but RB Leipzig go against that and that's what's infuriated so much about German football other clubs big clubs in Germany like Bayern Munich Dortmund Stuttgart etc have a fair say from their fans they all have voting rights they can buy memberships to the club and they have hundreds of thousands of members but Leipzig only have 19 members and all 19 of those members are uh, Red Bull employees or linked to Red Bull and it's that sort of thing where they sort of disallow fan voices and that's what's infuriated so many German fans, you know. To this day, this club are 12 years old. They've been playing the Bundesliga for five years, over five years actually. And um, fans from Dortmund, Bayern Munich still boycott away games. They still have protests. The same banners come out every year saying we don't want Red Bull or no to Red Bull or throw some flack at Dietrich Mattes, the Red Bull owner and founder. And uh, yeah, a polarizing club. The international fan base, they're perhaps more accepting of Red Bull. They don't see it from a German perspective. They say Leipzig are encouraging younger players, encouraging more international scouting and all that, attractive football. But the German fans see it in a more traditional way that these people are bad for our football. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, culturally, you know, depending on how you look at this, it can be seen very differently, actually. What's the reaction to the draw for you know this this season's Champions League being in in Leipzig circles, how how are they feeling about it? From what I've seen, it's mostly it was, it was kind of expected because they started off as a pot three team, which is what they've been doing for quite a while. Uh, even last season, they had a difficult draw with PSG, Manchester United, and uh, Istanbul was actually here, and they managed to get out of that. So you know if they can do that, beat two fairly strong clubs, even after a difficult start they made, they fit, they had the feeling they could do it again this year. But perhaps the challenge is more difficult this time around because PSG have strengthened from last year, obviously. You know, Messi is he improves any club, and Manchester City has strengthened as well after winning the title last season. So it's a difficult challenge for them, obviously. But they feel that if they could take on last year's challenges and go to the round of sixteen, they could probably do the same again. So there's a bit of motivation in in, in that regard. Obviously, they will feel a bit unfortunate that they had such a difficult draw. It's probably the two strongest teams in Europe or two strongest squads in Europe uh, in the same group, which is so rare to see. Probably never happens like that, but. This is the case. There was also the slight case of Jesse Marsh, the new head coach. Uh, his misfortune in the Champions League continues, or group stage was continues, because he's been in Europe uh, for three seasons, or this is his third Champions League group stage season, and he's never got past the group stage, purely because the draws he had is very difficult. The first season, he had Liverpool and Napoli. The second, he had Bayern and Atletico Madrid, and now he has PSG and Manchester City. So he has a bit of misfortune in these group stage draws. So if there's any chance he has of going through this squad, which is the best squad he's managed in his European career, is uh, the one to take him for. But it's a difficult challenge, nonetheless. You know, last season they had a, a tough start against Istanbul and they lost 5-0 to Manchester United at Old Trafford. And at that point, it felt as though their season was their Champions League season was over. And yet they managed to get there in second place after some impressive performance against PSG. They will have the feeling that they can do that once again. You know, if they can get, a, get all six points against Bruges, who are probably the easiest opponents they can face in this group and perhaps get a few home points against PSG and City. There's a 
there's a good chance they could go through. Yeah, it's interesting that I think because I think that's probably the way that Bruges are looking at this and they're looking at the Leipzig fixtures and thinking, well, they're they're you know they're the two fixtures that we have to really concentrate on trying to get maximum points from. And outside of that, anything you get is is absolutely a bonus. So they'll, I think they'll be absolutely approaching that in kind of the same way. That's really interesting. And how about domestically at the moment? How have they started the season? It's been a difficult start. Um, it, it was kind of expected to be a difficult start as well because it's a season of change. Last season, they had Julian Nagelsmann as head coach. This season's Jesse Marsh. Last season, they had Diopa Meccano and the captain Marcel Sabitzer in the squad. They start the season, they had neither. Uh, so it's a, it's a big season of change and they've been the biggest spenders in Germany, but purely because they've been they've had to sell that much and they've had a almost similar net spend, or I think it's about zero or a couple of million here and there because of how much they've had to spend in order to replace departed players. Lost even him Konate as well to Liverpool. So it's a big change in the squad. And uh, the start of the season has been, it's been difficult. It's been two losses out of three. Uh, they lost the opening game to Mainz, which was a game they probably should have won. Obviously, Mainz are one of the teams that are improving in Germany. But at the time, they had a really COVID-affected squad. So it should have been a three points for Leipzig, but it wasn't in the end. They beat Stuttgart impressively, a 4 0 win, which was supposed to be the turning point. But then again, they faced Wolfsburg, one of the stronger teams in the league, and lost again. Bayern Munich are up next, and there's already a feeling that if they lose to Bayern Munich, there'll be a couple of points behind them. And Lotte Mateus even set out this week that if they lose to Bayern, the title race is over and they have to focus on purely getting the top four. Still early in the season, still lots can change, but the feeling is that it's not started well. The Champions League draw didn't help. When you start the season that poorly and you get two teams, to the richest teams in Europe against you, it's a difficult thing to accept. But here they are. Domestically, it's not been the best. Perhaps the Champions League can be seen as a saving grace where they can perhaps get some points, have a positive season and then try to fix up domestically and go on from there. But it's still Jesse Masters' first season. This was this was slightly expected, but hopefully he hope things can improve at least. I was wanting to ask you about their European aspirations more generally because spending as much money as they have is obviously going to add pressure and there's going to be a, a greater expectation for, for a degree of, of European progress, certainly I would imagine as well. So I suppose that, I mean, you'll be able to tell us, but it sounds as if, you know, the, the slightly disappointing start to the season is is adding some extra edge onto what's expected and demanded, actually, probably is the right word, of, of how they might do in Europe. And I would imagine there's a target to, to get out of the group. Yeah, there should be. I mean, the ambition for Leipzig is to go as far as they can in the Champions League every season. The last two years under Julian Nagelsmann were very good. He, Nagelsmann did exactly what was expected of him, perhaps even exceeded expectations when he just when he reached the semi-final two years ago. Uh, last season, a difficult draw again, and they faced Liverpool and lost to Liverpool uh, in, the, in the round of 16. So if they can do that two seasons in a row, they'll expect that for the third season and perhaps build on that. But it's not they've not been helped. Jesse Marsh, he took on a difficult job. He knew what he was signing up for, and the start hasn't helped him either. So he'll be hoping to fix that up. Personally, I think it's going to be difficult for the first few months. I don't think they can get out of the Champions League group and I don't think that they will be pushing too highly for the title. It's still Bayern Munich to win. It's still a, a difficult race to to be a part of and win. And so I expect next season to be the one where Jesse Marsh's team perhaps kick off and, and it feels like Jesse Marsh's team because this season has been a lot of chopping and changing, new players coming in, old players going out and it's a new start almost for Leipzig almost a, a second cycle in the Bundesliga and speaking of players who who are the key players in the squad to kind of watch out for uh, Emil Forsberg's been one he had a very good year a very good season last time around you know it was unexpected purely because he was 
suffering with injuries in the season before, so 2019-20. But last season under Nagelsmann, he fixed that up, came back to the form which which many people knew about. And he had a very good European Championship with Sweden as well. So uh, he's definitely one to watch out for, probably the second or third best player in the squad, most gifted as well. Dominic Schubert's life started the season very well. Uh, his home debut against Stuttgart, he scored twice, both very good long-range goals, very appealing to see. He was... Injured for the second half of last season, he came back under a, a new manager with Jesse Marsh this season. So far, no fitness issues yet, but it, it's been a good start for him. He's still young, and it's going to be his first Champions League season with with Leipzig as well. So he's definitely one to watch out for. Probably one of the most potent players in the squad, and one to watch out for in the future as well. The attack is where it's at, and that's Andre Silva. He scored 27 goals for Eintracht Frankfurt last season, only behind Robert Lewandowski. Hasn't quite had the same start at Leipzig yet, but. In time, there's hope that he can perhaps bring that form back. But yeah, those three attacking players are very good. Forsberg, Silva and Schoboslai. Others in the squad are there too. And Kunku can change the game anytime. Golashi is one of the best goalkeepers in the Bundesliga. But so yeah, so it's a very talented squad and definitely one that's capable of perhaps springing a surprise in the Champions League. And how do they set up tactically under under, under Jesse Marsh? Has there, been, has there been much change there? It's been quite similar in terms of their formation. They always... and. and the positioning in the, in the squad is a very similar back three that Nagelsmann used to have for most of his time at Leipzig, uh, which is not really a surprise because that's how the Red Bull model works. They want managers who come in with a similar uh, idea and similar playing uh, style. And Marsh obviously worked at three different Red Bull clubs in the past in New York, Salzburg and Leipzig, and he's brought that sort of Red Bull flavour, I would say, to Leipzig, which was what Nagelsmann had as well in the past. But yeah, it's the same back three Two wing backs, three four three, or solid three four three, and Silva, Andre Silva leads the line, and the ambition is to get the ball to him as much as you can for him to just be there and be the target man, get the ball in the net. But but yeah, it's been quite similar, still the same fast attacking, high paced football. You could say perhaps in the league they've been quite unfortunate because based on expected goals they're supposed to be scoring much more than they are so it's a bit unfortunate that they've not been able to get the ball into the net but in time that's probably going to be fixed up yeah sometimes these things even themselves out over the season don't they it's, it's funny the way these things work there isn't obviously there's not a big Belgian connection between um, Belgium as a country in a footballing sense and Leipzig but there is there is one player maybe worth mentioning obviously there's Massimo Bruno a 27 year old winger I think he spent uh, four years at Leipzig before going to Salzburg as well. What, what do you remember of him? Not much. Not, not that it wasn't very significant time, I suppose. I mean, I can't really say because at the time I was quite young myself and didn't really follow much. But it's very surprising that Belgium, who are one of the biggest talent producers in European football over the last two decades or so, don't really have a big a connection with Leipzig or any other Red Bull clubs. But yeah, I can't really say much about Bruno. He's didn't really have a very significant Leipzig spell four years. Up. Or a significant Red Bull spell. You know, he was then squad member of the squad. I knew about him. I knew that he was there and he, he played for them, but nothing really significant, I could say. And a really interesting thing, I think, that listeners are probably aware of, but they might not, is that this is going to be the first time that a Belgian side has has, has met Leipzig in, in European competition. So that's going to be, I think that's going to be fun. It should be fun. I think, uh, you know, I think it's good for them to have these games against the non-top five sides on your league top five sides. You know, there is a bit of a Red Bull connection with Belgian football. Salzburg, I think, was it two years ago or three seasons ago uh, against Genk when Erling Haaland scored a hat-trick when they won 6-2. But there's no Leipzig connection yet, which is very surprising. But yeah, it should be good. I think it'll be a fun tie. They, they always... 
enjoy these little away games. Last year they had Istanbul. This year it's it's Bruges with, and, and Belgium, so it should be good. Yeah, I think those two fixtures are definitely going to be really competitive. I think, and and certainly more even in terms of the fixtures fixtures in this group. Tell everybody how how they can get in touch with you, Karan. Um, what what are your socials, and how can people get hold of your your book, Wings of Change? Yeah, I can be followed on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at current underscore page one twenty six, and my book can be found on all major retailers, Amazon, Book Depository, Waterstones, and it's called Wings of Change was out last November, and it tells you the story about Red Bull and football. Brilliant. It's been great to chat to you, uh, Karan, and uh, find out a wee bit more about, about Leipzig. Why don't we start by having a wee chat, Dave, about the reaction to the Champions League draw from from a Man City perspective? Uh, Weirdly, I was delighted by it. I have this thing with the Champions League where I think a lot of City fans kind of see through the Champions League for what it is in the early stages, which is ultimately a money-making exercise for the big clubs. And that's it. You know, you're guaranteed a certain number of games. You'll probably win them because of the seeding system and then you'll get through to the knockout ties where you can where you play the big boys and that's where the, the European Cup really kind of hits hits in. And every now and then you kind of like City got into this 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 spell, certainly in the last kind of five or six years, where they'd get drawn into the group. It would always be Shakhtar Donetsk for some reason. And then it would always they'd always end up with a group where they could lose the first game and there's no jeopardy in it. It's fine because they they'd win the next five and they'd, they'd top the group. There was a couple of years ago it was Manuel Pellegrini's second season they were they were god awful in the group and they still managed to get through in second place because of, of the way the seeding system works they they played Bayern Munich and 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 fluked to win in that one they they played Roma and and, and had a really good win actually in um, in Rome that was enough to get through to the to the to the knockout phase and it kind of it kind of hit home that what we were all complaining about when City started in the Champions League. I mean, the, the very first group they got uh, was Bayern Munich, Villarreal, and Napoli, and that was a that was a really tough group for City that year. They ended up finishing third, and they they didn't go through. And then the second year, they were drawn into the uh, what became the group of champions. They City went in as as English champions. They drew Real Madrid as uh, Spanish champions. They drew Borussia Dortmund as German champions at the time, and then Ajax as uh, as Dutch champions. And so. We were like, like everyone else gets easy draws. Why are we getting this? Why, why has this happened like this? And actually, now when you look back on it, those were the good groups. Those were the really, really good groups because it meant that all the games meant something in those six. And this is not a group that City can take easily. They, they you know, if they take this group easily, they could end up in the Europa League at, at, at the end of it, or they could end up even, you know, worse out of the competition entirely. So. I, I think it's a really good draw. There's no resting on your laurels for the first half of the season now. They have to they have to look at this draw and take each of these games really seriously. There's no there's no uh, there's no way they can they can get away with kind of rotating the team a little bit and giving a few players debuts and, and making sure that they just about do enough to win the game because PSG is going to be a tasty tie after the semi-finals last season. Leipzig I, they've never faced Leipzig as far as I can remember, so that'll be that they'll be an interesting uh, interesting proposition. And I don't remember a, a uh, ties against Club Bruges, but that'll that that, that I guess is that is the games where they will look at it and go if they don't get six points uh, from those two, then they are in trouble. So it's a I think it's a good draw. I'm I'm looking forward to it this year. Good and and what what's the story with the uh, City domestically at the moment? How's the, how's the season started? Swings and roundabouts really. They've looked really good against uh, Norwich and, and Arsenal. They didn't look that good against Spurs with the mitigating circumstances of the fact that most of the team had, had been back late from the Euros or been back late from uh, the South American competition. So 
I think I, th- I think they're getting there. I'm kind of a little bit miffed that we've got an international break now because it's it, it, it just kind of bumps off all the momentum that they built up in the last two games, and they don't have an easy run after the after the break as well. They've got uh, they they host Southampton, which is that could be a banana skin. Southampton have, have, have started badly, but they've uh, they've also got Leicester as well away as the uh, as the first game back, which won't be an easy tie at all. So I'm I'm quietly confident with the season if they can get through if they can get through the Leicester game. Especially Especially, and they can come out of that with three points. Then, then I think it's been a, a relatively good start. Okay, they lost a game, but um, you're going to lose games across the season, so uh, uh, they can. They, uh, you may as well lose them early on, so at least you've got time to to recover the difference. And uh, they've started to to put the performances together again now, so I'm I'm quietly confident that things are, are getting where they need to be. Obviously, like domestic football can be the approach to that can be quite different to European football for different sides as well. What sort of what are kind of City's European aspirations? I mean, obviously a fantastic run last season and generally there's there's kind of quite a strong run what's Pep's approach to kind of you know balancing you know the domestic side of things and and European aspirations. Normally, he's all guns blazing in all competitions, and it's usually to to the detriment somewhere along the line. And I I guess it's I guess it kind of speaks into his ambition to to walk away from City at the end of his time here and say you know I am the most successful manager in this club's history because he does. He the reason they win the League Cup every year is not because they it's not because they've got the best youngsters or anything like that. It's because he plays the first team and he plays the first team all the way through the competition and they've they've had a few relatively good draws but they've you know they've had to knock out uh, Liverpool they've had to knock out Chelsea in a couple of finals as well so there's they they do take everything seriously and so that kind of when you get round then to the, the the Champions League people always say to me I mean it'd be different this year because of, of, of we talked about the group stage um, but people always say to me do you think this is the year where Guardiola will focus on the Champions League and I always ask what people mean by that because you don't normally have to focus on the Champions League until February and if you know by February whether or not you're in with a shot at the title the, the year City didn't win the title uh, the two times they've not won the title under Pep they've known by February that they were out of it and they, that, that they weren't getting their top spot and so they could Kind of rotate the team in the Premier League games and and look at the look at the Champions League instead. On the flip side, last season he did focus on the Champions League. They they got the Premier League won by you know mid March or so. They had such a, a big lead in the Premier League that there were there, there were games where it was it was literally the case they lost at home to Leeds in uh, simply because the the team Guardiola selected was everybody who is not going to play against I think it was Borussia Dortmund uh, in the midweek and then we'll work out what formation we play after that. So it was it was like a and changes from the midweek to to the Premier League side, and so it was it was a real focus on the on the Champions League last season. We all know that the Champions League is the one that that City as a club want to win. Uh, the fans, I'm not going to say they don't want to win it. The fans are happy to win whatever they win. That's that's kind of how it is. I, I think if you were to turn around and say City will win the, the Champions League this season and nothing else, uh, I don't think the fans go well. That's a terrible season. Uh, on the flip side, if they if they only won the Premier League, the fans don't go well. You know. It, it, it's been a good season, but you know they've they've jacked in the Champions League, so they, so that's put a dampener on things. City fans are happy to win whatever, and that I think kind of stems back to having gone so long without winning things a few years ago. So the approach to the Champions League this year will be interesting based on that group start that 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 group stage because he can't he can't not take it seriously for the for the group. And you know that you look 
at you look domestically, Chelsea have strengthened, Liverpool have got their players back that they had injured last season. Uh, United have strengthened as well. City shouldn't find it as easy to win the league as they did last season if they are going to win it. So it'll be a real, real balancing act. And if I'm honest, I don't really know where Guardiola will will find the balance. I think he's uh, I think he's he's got to get lucky. I think with injuries and with suspensions to be able to play players, you know, from uh, and manage the squad to play them in enough of the games to to, to get the results he needs. I think that kind of indicates that that sort of you know no mercy to anybody in any competition, no real prioritising because I think as soon as any side takes their eye off one ball and prioritises another one slightly more, then you know. All it takes is, you know, the house can come crashing in quite quickly when you do that. So I think that just from a purely competition level in the squads as well, certainly when you've got a squad with as much depth and quality that City do, that it's very important to really do that. You know, no competition is any less important than the other. You know, and often fans' opinions of these things is quite different to inside the club. It's, it's interesting that. I think the, the squad depth as well will be interesting because obviously the transfer window's closed now. Uh, City didn't get a striker in, so they, they go into this season with... I mean, Gabriel Jesus is nominally a striker, but he's he's already said himself that he sees himself more as a winger. Guardiola said he's he's a winger. He's going to be playing out wide this season. So officially, the most senior striker in the squad is a lad called Liam Delap, who's 18 years old and the son of the long throw merchant Rory Delap. He he looks really good, but he's not going to be the answer. He's not going to be the, the one that that City chuck in and and play the number nine role for the for the entire season. He might get one or two chances. He might not. So it's interesting that Bernardo Silva, who was rumored to be leaving didn't leave that uh, obviously Jesus was one who might have left didn't leave it, it means that they do have a lot of players who all want attacking positions and they are not playing a striker so there is one extra attacking midfield position in in, in each of these games now and there's going to be a lot of games and there's going to be a lot of games that City can't afford to lose so it does mean that he might be able to if he's got a fully fit squad he might be able to play in the league one week Grealish, Mares, and Bernardo and then in the midweek he can chuck in Foden he can chuck in De Bruyne or he can chuck in you know Sterling these are all players that, that can rotate around and you wouldn't say one's stronger than the other so they, they do that's that's where I guess the squad depth will come into it I was a little worried that they, that they might have too many attacking options if they got a striker in and didn't manage to get someone like like Silva, who does want to leave, to be fair to him, out of the door, then uh, they might be might be in trouble. But it, th- actually, now that I think about it, it's probably a blessing in disguise that that the transfer window ended the way it did. That's interesting. I was going to ask you because this leads on nicely to kind of key players for Belgian football fans to sort of look out for from a City perspective. I mean, Foden's the one for me always. I think last season City were a better team with Foden in it than than when he wasn't in it, and the fact that he's so young and the fact that that's that that's the case says just how good he is. I've never seen anything like him. I've ne- I've never seen anybody come through the ranks at a club as uh, likes at uh, the stature of City's. Uh, break into the first team and perform on such a consistent level as he has. He's incredible and I absolutely love him to bits. So I think he's the one, when he's back and he's fit, he's the one I think City need to be need to be kind of building their team around. Obviously, Grealish takes the headlines with having, City having spent £100 million on him uh, this, this summer. Those two together can be, can be, could be frightening down the down the left side. And then, I mean, Belgian football fans don't need me to wax lyrical about Kevin De Bruyne. They they, they know what he can do. He's, you know, he's, he's in my eyes, now that... Uh, 
uh, now that Messi is a little bit older and now that Ronaldo is uh, has question marks of his uh, well first off his his ability from Juventus but also his integrity at moving to a club like Manchester United as a City fan I think you've got to uh, you, you've got to, you've got to ask you know what kind of uh, where 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 does it lie I think I I think Kevin De Bruyne has a real stake on the title of best player in the world right now and that the fact that he's a City player and the fact that he he will be the one that City build their team around for this and seasons to come is is only is only exciting for City fans. And you were lucky enough to see him uh, earlier. Yeah, <laughs> tell, tell us a bit about that. This this is this goes to show. I mean, maybe this undermines all of my entire judgment that I ever make in any players ever for for people to listen to. While in in Belgium, I I, I took in a racing gank game. I can't remember who they played, uh, but it would have been uh, in about 2010. It would have been the it would have been the team that had Courtois and and, and De Bruyne in it and. De Bruyne, I think De Bruyne started the game and I remember saying all the way through, he's not done much and I don't really, everyone was raving about him and I was like, I just don't see it. I don't see how this kid is going to go on to, to to be one of the best players in the world like like everyone here seems to think. And here we are now with De Bruyne as a, as a city as a city player who is running riot week after week, pulling off, you know, with, with vision and passing ability that I've never seen the like of before. And it's me still you know, still trying to pass judgment on players as I see them come through and and talk about how good they're going to be or not, or in this case, not going to be. So uh, yeah, he uh, he's he's proven me wrong a little bit on that. That's one. a lovely story, actually. It just shows you what a small world the footballing community actually is. <laughs> Tell us a wee bit as well about how how City set up tactically, because I know there's there, there can be some differences in Europe to how they set up domestically as well, depending on who they're playing. Pep's not afraid to make big changes tactically for for European games, is he? Well, he wasn't in the Champions League final. That's that's for sure. Uh, he he should have just gone as normal in the Champions League final and uh, they'd have done a lot better than they did he, he has this itch he, he has to scratch the itch sometimes and he got he got through most of last season without doing it but then every now and then he does something really really weird and it just it, it just knocks City off balance he did it in and he didn't do it to be fair in his first season they got knocked out to Monaco when it was just a crazy game they they didn't play as as, as they should have done in the second leg and they conceded too many goals it, they went out in the away goals rule it was unlucky the next season they were battering everybody in the league they, that was the year they got 100 points in the league and he goes to Anfield and plays uh, Ilkay Gundogan as a right winger to come inside to cover Sadio Mane a little bit when Liverpool have the ball but also to stretch the pitch when, the pitch when City have it and nah it didn't work it just left City wide open and Liverpool broke through with ease the next season 18-19 he had one game where he, he had any leeway whatsoever and that was at Spurs and he <laughs> he named his team that was a fully rotated team for the for the away leg and was like if we can get out of this of this game with a narrow defeat or, or a draw then we've done all right and they got out of it with a narrow defeat and then he went okay let's have chaos in the second leg and chaos in the second leg resulted in that bizarre Raheem Sterling last minute winner that was chalked off with VAR okay so let's try again next year then the next year was the was, was the pandemic tournament year where every, everybody went off to Portugal and, and played single leg ties and they, they drew Leon, who should have been fairly beatable for City at that time they had a, they had a decent squad but you know City's squad was much better and he looked at Leon and went 
what we need to do is play a back three. We've not played a back three all season, so let's try it in this game. And it just left City wide open again and they lost. And then last season, everything was going fine until the final, at which point he goes, we've not pl- we- we've not played with Gundogan as the holding midfielder for... for like He'd done it in, in all but one of the games or something that season. And he went, this is the game that we're going to do it in. And it just didn't work again. And, and City just looked toothless. And it's it's almost like he gets this itch to do something a bit funky and, and just had resisted the urge all of last season and then and then yeah just did it right right when it mattered most and uh, and, it, and it backfired we can't we can't finish up without touching I don't think on kind of the the big Belgian connection really generally between city and Belgian football more widely as well it's not just big Vincent company of course who although he can't be there in presence can be there in in, in metal form at the moment yeah obviously there's there's big Vinny and then there's uh, Kevin de Bruyne as well but because of city's owners the city football Football group. They also have a Belgian club as part of their their group of clubs as well. They own Lommel, who are one of the one B sides as as well. So there, there there must be a lot of affection in city circles for Belgium. I would imagine. I I honestly couldn't tell you which club it was that the that the football group owned because and I I don't mean that to be flippant because ultimately I'm a City fan. I'm not a fan of New York City. I'm not a fan of of any of the any of the clubs under the City Football Group umbrella. I don't really understand the point of. The, the owners having the model that they do but I'm sure it's beneficial to them in some way to be able to have the income into the group I, I don't know how it works the one thing that uh, I, I thought I actually thought you were going to go back to 2006 and and, and uh, the beautiful Emil and Penza who came in to uh, basically save City's season in uh, in 06 07 they couldn't score a goal at home uh, and I think he scored three times away from home and, and it was enough to get six points that kept City up that year but yeah there's there, there's a couple of connections there and uh, yeah I, uh, I I couldn't have told you yeah. who the who the who the Belgian team was in the uh, in the City football group they're all, they're all good and actually quite interesting because at the moment as well, you'll probably know, although you won't necessarily have seen much of him, we've probably seen more of him obviously because he's playing with Anderlecht at the moment, um, Taylor Harwood Bellis Yes. Um, product of your academy hot prospect is uh, on a season long loan with, with Big Vinny at Anderlecht at the moment and is and is looking okay actually touching on the City group thing again back to that Lommel connection uh, Daniel Arzani's over there just now um, I think he's in his he's got the final year of his City contract so he's over there obviously hoping to get some regular game time and get some get some fitness going as well because he's been very unlucky with his fitness but there's there's quite a lot of you know sort of City Belgian football connections which is kind of quite interesting interesting that a lot of people might not know about as well other than the obvious yeah. ones Big Benny and- I've just I, I've just re- remembered as well how could I have forgotten that uh, Daniel Van Boyten played for City in 2003 2003-04 he came in at, at, towards the end of the season and uh, I think I think he I think he was at Marseille at the time and I think Marseille wanted six million for him and we couldn't afford it and so he ended up going to buy Munich <laughs> and then yeah the, the rest is history but yeah and uh, and there's a there was a goalkeeper as well he, he I have interviewed him and he taught me how to say his name and I've forgotten. Hurt Hurt the Vlieger? The Vlieger? Yep. But uh, yeah, it's uh, so there's there's a couple of Belgians that uh that, that have been been part of City's history, yeah. It's always interesting to hear people's memories. Just before we finish up, actually, I need to ask you, what's that ride been like having having all that money? What's that like? Because it's something that most football, you know, there's only, only a very small number of teams can relate to that. PSG yeah. is probably another one. What's that been like? Because I did see some City fans recently having a, a good laugh about, you know, it was, it was much more fun being a City fan when we were rubbish and we didn't 
didn't have any money. Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on because this is going to be a much more in-depth answer than I think you were expecting. But I I, I think about this a lot because ultimately it, it doesn't matter to me. It's it's football is rich people doing rich people things. I can't I, I can't influence it in in any way or the other. So I support the team. I enjoy the good times. I don't enjoy the bad times. I, I think City's relationship with the success is is weirdly tempered by how recent the worst period in City's history was. The lowest ever point that City reached was in 1999. So it was it's it's within living memory. It's, it's just over 20 years ago. So it's within living memory for for most of the uh, of the fan base. So that kind of clouds how you clouds your judgment, I guess, on on where things are now. Because when City lose a game, you get a mixture of reactions, which kind of stems from uh, it's not it's absolutely not good enough because they they have these players that are that are the best in the world and they've lost to Norwich or they've lost to Aston Villa or whoever. And then you get the, what what gets kind of batted back over the net from that is yeah, but at least they're not losing to Macclesfield anymore. At least they're not losing to York City anymore or at least they're not 12th in the in the third tier anymore and it's kind of like yeah but that team hadn't had nearly a billion pounds spent on it so like it's really hard to kind of judge where you need to be and the like the strange thing about it all was that city side that was losing to Macclesfield and and, and was playing against Northampton in the third tier the fans were always considered to be some of the best in England and it was always oh well you know we love Manchester City fans because they follow the team through thin and thin and they don't ever see any any good times they have to live in the shadow of Manchester United and their team is absolutely rubbish and then suddenly they get a load of money and the the fans are still turning up and it's ah well you see all these plastic fans Johnny come lately fans it's like you can't have it both ways it's one or the other it's not like it just just because like City got lucky doesn't mean that uh, that the fans aren't turning up anymore and so you, you kind of get into this really weird paradox where they exist in these two states and it's 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 very funny so I I, I kind of I kind of try and focus on what happens on the pitch and, and just kind of kind of enjoy the enjoy the successful football and and kind of acknowledge that we did get very lucky we got we got lucky to the point where it's probably now a situation that is, is unchangeable for City they're, they're probably even if even if the owners were to sell up and, and somebody else were to come in it's going to take some huge mismanagement for City to fall away from being one of the top teams in England and that's that's just luck more than anything else you football up until now football has generally been cyclical and you you have a spell where one team is dominant they fall away and somebody else takes the place sort of thing with the invention of the Premier League and with the invention of the way the Champions League runs and with the way that prize money is distributed with the huge money coming in from from TV revenues and with the money being pumped in by owners of, of of teams like cities and PSGs, then it's almost impossible now for for teams to to break into that with a regular basis. And the fact that Leicester is the only kind of fairy tale that we have of the last of the Premier League era since well probably Blackburn, it, it doesn't speak volumes to how well the game is being run right now. And even then, Leicester didn't do it cheaply. They they spent a lot of money. I think they broke financial fair play in the Championship to come up into the Premier League anyway. And uh, and they had to spend a, a fair chunk of money more than more than other clubs in the in the league that year to, to win the title. It was just unexpected because they nearly went down the year before and that's that's the kind of best we can offer right now. And it's it's quite sad because when I think of when I think of City in in the great Mercer Allison era, that was that was great because City won the they they came up in testing my memory now. I think they came up in 66 67, stayed up in 67 68 and then won the league in 60 68 69. So it might have been a year earlier actually. It might take one year off each one of those and and you get the right answer. But but that just that just 
doesn't happen anymore. And so it's it's kind of sad to see. And you you do have to acknowledge that it's that that we are lucky to be to be able to see what we are. But equally, we shouldn't feel guilty about seeing what we do because it's not our fault and we didn't have a say in it. So we just have to we just have to acknowledge that we are blessed to see the football that we do and and kind of take what comes with it in that sense. Yeah, I think that's a very fair way of looking at it, actually. It was something that when we saw the draw at our end and we had a look at it, our whole spend was like, I'm actually quite pleased that City and PSG are in Bruges' group because one of the things he likes to ask clubs that, you know, have come from, well, not obscurity, but, you know, a difficult place, which City were in before, obviously, the the football group kind of came along and pumped the money in, and the same with PSG kind of completely changing the kind of culture of a club. And I think you're right to look at it from that point of view because, actually, you can't, you can't influence that really in any way at all. Yeah, we, we have no say in it, and it's like, it, it just... Because... The, the one thing that I didn't get into football for, and like I, I understand why some City fans do it, and why if you look on Twitter, you'll see a lot of City fans who defend the club come what may, and they'll they will they'll talk about the finances and well, we didn't break financial fair play because of this, that, and the other. I honestly don't care if City broke financial fair play or not. It's not my job to care. They, I, I didn't get into football to look at a spreadsheet and work out how much money they are allowed to spend compared to how much money they're not allowed to spend based on rules that came in. in in the time after they were taken over, like it just doesn't it doesn't interest me. What does interest me is the thoughts and the feelings and and the emotions that you get with football and the stories. Like nobody nobody's pretending that it's a fairy tale that City have won the league like they have done under Guardiola because it just isn't. They spent a lot of money and they they got the best players and they won the league in that manner. What we are saying is that it's it's really really good to watch and it's really entertaining to watch and we're blessed to watch it and it's it, it, it genuinely is a shame that other teams can't get that same sort of uh, opportunity from from one week to the next. Uh, simply, I mean, the, the other side of it is you look at what financial fair play has done. It's probably cemented City in the top because it means nobody else can spend the money that City could spend in 2009, 2010, 2011 to get themselves into the uh, into the elite. Nobody can do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or at least they can, but they get chucked out of European competition. It just, it's... It, it almost in an attempt to it, it feels like from for a, for a lot of city fans that UEFA's attempt was to stop city being able to spend a lot of money actually what it's done is probably cement the clubs that are at the top mm-hmm. at the top and it doesn't really help anyone i mean go back to the go back to europe in in the you know in the 90s and some of the names there now are genuinely struggling to get into european competition and that's that's that demonstrates the the, cycli- the cyclical nature of football i reckon in 20 years time we will see the same sort of names in the champions league it just it, it it is what it is because it's it's kind of been ring fenced off and it's a shame really. No, that's that's all that's all good stuff. I think I, I kind of wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you on, on any of that at all really. I need to ask you as well how how City fans are feeling about Pep leaving at the end of of next season and kind of flagging that up nice and early for everybody. Um, is there any nerves about that or is it well we'll just you know we'll deal with it at the time and I trust I trust the people upstairs to to get to get the right person ahead of, ahead of time. Yeah, there's always nerves because it's going to come to or later and it's come a lot later than I think many of us were expecting. Pep's actually going to be if he, assuming he finishes his, his contract and he doesn't leave earlier, he's going to be City's longest serving manager since, I, I worked it out, it's something like since the first James Bond film came on the cinemas that's that, like, that's how long it's been since City has had a manager that, that served seven seasons. I, I'm i a little bit nervous about what comes next I do think he is already regretting his choice of words because in his press conference ahead of the Arsenal game, a couple of the, of the press 
put that uh, to him. It's like, you, you know, you've said this in this interview with ESPN Brazil, what, like, what's going on? And he said, well, I didn't say I was leaving at the end, at the end of seven years. I might leave sooner if I'm not doing very well. They might sack him. And it's like, there is absolutely no way City are going to sack Guardiola. It just, like, he could, he, he, he could be taking City into 10th place, 15th place, whatever. He ain't getting sacked. This, this, this project was built up for him. So he, he says, I might, I might leave earlier. I might, we, I, all I was saying is that we reassess the situation at the end of the contract. And so I think he's already given himself enough wiggle room to be able to sign an extension and go, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm not going to get it better anywhere mm-hmm. else because he isn't going to get it. Uh, he isn't going to get it as good anywhere else as he has it at City because whatever he says goes right now, and that's uh, not a position he had at, at Bayern Munich. Uh, it's quite famously not a position he had at, at Barcelona, and I don't see what club he moved to. Like if he if he were to take if he were to look at Juventus somewhere like that, he isn't going to get the same sort of level of control that he get that, that he would have at City right now. He wants to do international football. I know he wants to do international football, but I, I suspect my inkling is that is still that at the end of this contract they come they come to him and they say, Listen, go on, how, how about another two years? And he'll and he he'll think about it for maybe four or five months and have a real, real yeah. wrangle with himself and then go, Oh, all right, then go on. I'll I'll sign it. And then then maybe at the end of that one he'll uh, he'll look at something else. And I and City will as long as they can keep him, they will keep they they will keep offering him an extension. Um, yeah, I, and that's he'll he'll leave on his terms, and there'll come a point where he where he gets exhausted with it and he can't can't do it anymore. Maybe that is at the end of end of his seventh season and and at the end of his current contract. But uh, my my gut instinct right now is that maybe uh, if he hasn't got the champ if he's got the Champions League, then maybe that's that's what tips it and that that makes his decision for him. But if he hasn't got the Champions League, he might still have the the desire to scratch that itch a, a little longer. 